0: it's tuesday february 7th 2023 from peachfish productions it's the gist i'm mike Pesca. tonight is joe biden's speech to both houses of congress where he will certainly reveal that the state of the union is inattentive i mean we've got balloon gazi to pick over And look, I know I should give time, attention, resources to previewing the speech and then post-morteming the speech and asking questions like, how much will this help Joe Biden and the democratic agenda? But I remember last year, he delivered the speech just as Russia was rolling into Ukraine. And the coverage that night was something like, "Eh, we probably won't even be talking about this speech next week, but they were wrong. They weren't even talking about it later that week. That Sunday on Meet the Press, Chuck Todd wondered to the chuckles of his panel. State of the Mm -hmm. Union, is anybody writing about it this morning? It is (laughs) uh, sort of, amazingly lost Robin. So there is no new invasion of Ukraine by the Russians this time, but there was an invasion. Oh no, not just an invasion, an incursion, a balloon incursion. And for the right, there was at least three busloads of disapproval to heap upon the president's inaction. As Biden's cowardly, feckless response to this crisis continues to unfold in real time. Sean Hannity alleging fecklessnessness, fecklessness. But if you shot the balloon down over a population center, then the criticism would be recklessness. So do you proceed without feck or without reck? Like a millstone around his neck, this charge of lack of feck. I know, right? What the heck? So feckless or reckless, as we spoke yesterday, Marco Rubio's framing was that this just shows that the U.S. is a nation in decline. Most of the other Republicans I heard talking about this were saying the same thing, weak, weak leader, by which they mean our leader. So what must they be saying in China about their leader? Well, if Biden's weak, he must have shown himself to be strong. Nope. Financial Times headline, Chinese balloon furor Puts focus on Xi Jinping's leadership. Concerns emerge about decision making at top of Beijing's policy apparatus. And the New York Times, describing the quote Chinese balloon that bumbled its way across the United States, reported that the balloon might be a lighter than air touchstone. Quote focusing the world's attention on the prospect that the communications and control within Chinese leader Xi Jinping's government and his vaunted security apparatus may be less coherent or even less functional than the image he so confidently projects. So in the U.S., our most patriotic Republicans are bemoaning U.S. dysfunction in the face of Chinese guile while over in China, the same incident is seen as a sign of Chinese dysfunction and lack of guile. Balloon or Rorschach test? Unpiloted surveillance craft or empty vessel to pour one's domestic complaints and insecurities into? The best phrase I think was in the Financial Times, Keep in mind the old adage that the Chinese think in terms of centuries. FT says, quote, Chinese analysts downplayed the long term ramifications of the confrontation, which they say was likely to blow over. Though, by their own admission, Chinese estimates of which way the wind blows have been quite deficient. On the show today, decriminalizing sex work leads to catastrophizing pimp work. But first, you know him, you're drawn to him or his story or his example. He is Anthony Scaramucci. They call the man the mooch. Trump advisor, Samuel Bankman-Fried partner, and it's been revealed victim. And of course, new podcast host, Scaramucci, gives us an insight into how Trump thinks, what we should think about how he thinks of Trump, and how hurtful it is to be likened to a mafia don. It's the Pesca Scaramucci conclave you know you've been waiting for. He's a podcast host, a former White House official, author, investor, self-promoter, force of nature, and also, and this designation is unique among GIST guests, he's a unit of time, 11 days, the Scaramucci, Anthony Scaramucci, joins us to talk about Cover Story, the new podcast, and his career. Thanks for coming on the GIST.
1: Hey, man. it's a, you, you. First of all, you have an amazing show. I love listening to you. You're fresh and authentic. And I love the fact that you describe me as a self promoter because aren't we all self promoters from Long Island? Sean Hannity, Mike Pesca, Anthony Scaramucci,
0: Rosie O'Donnell, Howard Stern. Or, yeah.
1: oh, Howard Stern. Yeah. I mean, come on. Who could be more promotional?
0: So I have been listening to the new podcast, but you know, I also listened to the old podcast, TMI, and in an early episode, you had on a mental health expert named Harold Koplowitz and you were talking about the candidate pool of 2016. This is about the time where Trump had sewn up the nomination, but you ha- you hadn't yet endorsed him. Koplowitz says that he was very disturbed by Trump's thin skin. He thinks it's a terrible quality in a person and a candidate. And you rebut Koplowitz and you say, you don't think he has thin skin. He's just a good street fighter. And that's a tactic that worked for him. So. Looking back on that, what was going on there? I would say you got it wrong, but was there was there some sort of uh, self-motivation? Yeah,
1: no, no, no. no I mean, I, I love I Dr. Coppola. He's way smarter than me, but like, you know, and you know this from the grit of Long Island and you know where you grew up and where I grew up, you know, there's different types of smarts. There's street smarts, there's intuition, there's academic smarts, Trump- Okay, it does not have a thin skin and people can say whatever the hell they want. I can prove that he has a skin like armadillo. He's gone through tabloids. He's gone through lawsuits. He's been grinded by the media for 50 years. Uh, It's a tactic. It's a feature. It's not a bug of his personality. He actually enjoys it. But what he is is a fucking bully. Okay, now that's different from being a thin-skinned guy, okay? So he's a bully. So if you're hitting him, he's going to get into a counterpuncher position and hit you back like 20 times, okay, to show you who's boss. Okay, now I love that because when he started a fight with me, I know how to deal with bullies, right? So, I mean, he completely, immediately, boom, stopped the fight with me. Once I, you know, first shot was I said he was the fattest president, since William Howard Taft. I know he hated that. I got knocked off of Twitter for 12 hours because you can't fat shame people. And then he came back at me. And then I said, geez, you're getting old because I know he hates being fat and old. I said, these retorts are like lame. You know, you, you're talking to a fellow in New Yorker. I'm not Ted Cruz. You're going to have to come up with better retorts. And then I smacked him hard. You want to hear what I said to him? I said, I spoke to Stormy because she was on a Bill Maher show with me. And everyone's got a nickname. And your nickname is Tiny Trump. Okay. And so we know that's why you're over masculine and that's why you're wearing the high heels and you have the orange war paint on and all that stuff because you're hiding from, you know, what the Italians would say, Piccolo Picciadelli. You know what I mean? The poor guy, right? Once I did that, Mike, the game was over. Okay. Because what happens with bullies like Trump, they will fight back and they'll get nasty. until they meet up with somebody that's ready to fight with them and ready to take them on, okay? So, so what? What Coppel was should have said is that due to his narcissism and due to his intellectual lameness, he should never have been in that position. And somebody like me, or General Kelly, or Jim Mattis, or uh, Mike Pompeo, Kellyanne Conway, we. Uh, as responsible people, more normal than Trump at least, should have never supported him. So I have to own that for the rest of my life, and I do, and I've apologized for that, but I can't go back on that. And I would say to anybody listening to your amazing podcast, if you've never made a mistake in life, shell me and throw rocks at me. But if you have made a mistake in life, I hope you at least respect me for owning my mistake and being accountable for it, And then I did go after the guy when he was the sitting president of the United States, the most powerful person in the world. I was hitting him as hard as I could hit him on every national television network that there was, uh, okay, to try to prevent him from getting
0: reelected. I want to- unwind a couple aspects of your answer. One is not to get into semantics, what counts as thin skin and what doesn't. And I take your point that if what we count as thin skin is how much does it bother him? It doesn't. Yeah. I I believe that it doesn't really bother him in, in his soul for reasons of, I don't know how in touch with any kind of emotions he is fine putting that aside. What I think Koplowitz was saying is it's a very bad quality for a leader. And I subscribe to this because you allow yourself to get distracted. And rather than keeping your eye on what's important, if anyone comes after you, you feel obligated. You can't stop yourself from going back at them. And so it might not bother you, but it totally undoes your agenda.
1: You're hundred percent right about that. And if that's the point that Harold was making,
0: but overall it seems to a rather bad quality, not just in terms of morals, in terms of leadership.
1: People shit on me all the time. They write nasty things about me on Twitter. They, you know, they try to mischaracterize me in reality shows. though. I, and it's it's fine. You know, what I mean, at the end of the day, if you're in the public domain, you have to expect that. You know, it's like Danny Amendola became a friend of mine because we were on the Special Forces show together. And I said to Danny, you know, he said, "Well, politics, man, it sucks. You get your ass kicked." I said, "Danny, you put a helmet on in the NFL, you get a concussion, guaranteed, unless you're the punter." or the kicker, you're going to end up with at least one concussion in the season. And, and my point is if you go into politics, you're going to get defined, you're going to get two-dimensionalized, you're going to get caricatured. I guess the only issue that the Cuomos have and the Scaramucci's have is that they go after the Italians hard. Hard, man. You know, they say shit like I'm a Mafia Don, I was Tony Soprano on the Potomac, I was a gym I was a Jim Tan laundry, Jersey Shore cast member in the White House. Uh, uh, I've been called a guido, slick back. So they don't do that for blacks. They don't do that for Jews, right? Because they got Anti-Defamation League and ACP, all this stuff. They don't do that. But the Italians, for whatever reason, they can come at you with the racial invective and the racial slurs. And by the way, I'm a big boy. You know, I am I sit on the Columbus Citizens Foundation and these guys are upset with the Sopranos and this, that, and the thing. I'm a big believer in the First Amendment. No problem. Say whatever you want. But but at least the, the problem is you can't reciprocate. Like I said to Reverend Sharpton, what if we had a show on HBO, 9 o'clock on Sunday nights. It was called at the Jacksons. And we were up in Harlem. We are shooting at each other. We had spinners on the Escalades. We had gold in our teeth. We had hoes everywhere. We were smoking crack pipes, murdering each other, shooting up heroin and we took every black negative archetype every black negative stereotype and we broadcast it on HBO 9 to 10 o'clock every sunday night you guys would be marching on washington marching on washington not the italians no problem let's go we can take it and 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 i'm just mentioning it and observing it um but i'm a big boy i can take the beating and trump cannot take the beating but he's not taking the beating cuz he's thin skinned. he's taking the beating you know he's because he's a bully. See, and and I think your point, and maybe Harold's point, is leaders should not be bullies. A okay, leader, good leader, should be tough, no question. But they have to love humanity. If you're going up against Vladimir Putin, you got to be tough. But you also have to demonstrate that you love humanity. That's why I'm, I'm I'm upset with DeSantis. Don't fly to people to Martha's Vineyard. Don't fly them there because they they're people. That could have been my grandmother. Don't fly them to Martha's Vineyard. And then he'll say to me, "Well, why shouldn't I fly in the Martha's Vineyard? They're flying. You know, Joe Biden's moving the people all over the country. Okay, two wrongs don't make a right. You're better than that. Great leaders don't do that. Great leaders, they they win the people in the intellectual marketplace of free ideas. They don't have to do bullying things. Okay, it it, it reflects poorly on the country. To be honest, it's not it's not the country that you and I grew up in when you're doing shit like that."
0: When you get called a Guido or a Mafia Don or subscribing to concepts of Omerta, does that actually uh, offend you ethnically? Or is it more that you see the injustice that these sort of slurs can't be directed at others? Yeah, it's a double standard. I laugh. Hey,
1: I named my restaurant the Hunt and Fish Club. I named it after John Gotti's social club in Queens because I said, if you're going to stereotype me, let's go with the Fulmonte. And we'll have the Fulmonte name the place the Hunt and Fish Club. Continue to stereotype me. I got no problem with it, okay? And, you know, Stallone said something in CBS Sunday morning. He said, well, you know, for 50 years they thought I was a mobster. I never played a mobster, so I'm now finally playing a mobster. He's on Tulsa King, right? My my my, my point is I don't care, Mike. I don't care. I'm just bringing it up to emphasize we're in a weird culture now. We have a cancel culture. Uh, you can't say certain things about certain people. You can't use certain words. But you want to steamroll an Italian with negative invective and stereotypes, no problem. That's still, you have license to do that.
0: I'll just note that, you know, the Sopranos and, and uh, the Godfather were made by Italians and they're great works of art. And so maybe that, that contains some of it. And I'll also note that Ryan, Ryan Lizzo, who was the reporter that you did your uh, fateful interview with, he's Italian.
1: Well, no, well, well not only was he Italian, his father was close personal friends with my dad. They worked in the construction industry out here on Long Island and they met each other in 1967. So we had a 50 year relationship with that family. Okay. And so, okay. You know, what can I tell you? He made a decision. And when he, he said to me what he was going to do that, he recorded me. And I said, well, you didn't tell me you were recording I me. Mean, well, it's a one-party state, blah, blah. I said, okay. I said, if you put that out, it was a legendary line about Steve Bannon, by the way, and it was obviously vindicated because look what a nutcase he is, but if you put that out, it was a fun, legendary line, I'm going to get fired. Put it out. You're a transactional guy, and a 50-year relationship between our two families on Long Island is going to end, and you knew- from our relationship and the camaraderie of our relationship that that was off the record. But go ahead, put it out. I'm going to get fired. He put it out. I got fired. But Mike, let me say this to you. I never blamed him. Blame me. I took full accountability for it. I didn't blame Trump. I didn't blame Kelly. I'm personal friends with John Kelly. I do speaking engagements with him all over the country. No problem. I made a mistake. I did something that embarrassed the president or the office that I was sitting in, and I got fired. That's my fault. I own it. Well, wait, the journalist who your family knew, the family for 50 years, he did it to you. No, no. I should have protected myself. If you're if you're sitting in a room with a scorpion and a scorpion bites you, hey, move away from the scorpion. You follow what I'm saying? You gotta take responsibility. So I'm not a victim. I own the I own the mistake. I was accountable for it. But well, yeah, he was Italian and he decided he was going to hurt me. He thought it was important for his career. He's lost three jobs uh, since then. And he's uh, a little wayward in his current job because people don't trust him because, you know, of what he did to me. And and, and Howie Kurtz, who was on uh, Fox, who's been in Washington for 45 years, said to me, Uh, he's never seen a, a a white house correspondent do that to a white house official. Like Rahm Emanuel didn't say the F bomb every 17 seconds, but you know, they decided to do it to me. God bless,
0: you know, move on. I probably Rahm's, uh, invective was not quite as colorful as you (laughs) telling, telling the world that Steve Bannon performs, let's say self fellatio, but you know what? You were on the right audio, audio fellatio. You were on the right side of history with that one. And maybe he did you a favor getting you out of there.
1: No, God bless. Look at all everything works out, Pascal. Let me ask him. Do you believe in God? No. Nope. Okay, but I'm going to tell you why you should believe in God. You want to know why? Tell me. Okay, I'm going to tell you why, okay? Because Steve Bannon is charismatic. And Steve Bannon is incredibly well read. And if you were listening to Steve Bannon on a podcast, you didn't see him, oh, you're moved by the guy. But God made him so motherfucking ugly. To save the <laughs> civilization from Steve,
0: Madden. you can't cover up that amount of ugliness. You can't, can. no matter and how and, many shirts you put and on. And the on. contemporary
1: hobo with the bulbous alcoholic nose, and and, and 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 so so God put him. He encapsulated him in a carcass that is very homely to save the civilization from Steve Bannon.
0: That is the theological explanation for Bannon, and you've convinced me more than all those. You should believe in God, man, because
1: God, I mean, how could you not believe in God if I told you that? I mean, come on. God saved us from this jackass.
0: I want to go back. To, I, w- I want to hit a, a few things, but you talked about. You mentioned that Trump came at you, and you t- uh, um, you said he was the fattest president since Taft. Now that happened in a time of your career when you were post White House, but still uh, a public voice for much of the Trump agenda. In fact, on that Bill Maher episode, you know, seven eighths of what you said was supporting tr- what Trump was doing, but. But you did take issue with him, his uh, racist, go back to your home country statements about the members of the squad.
1: Yeah, I thought thought that was racist and nativist. And I said, the president shouldn't talk like that. When I came off the show, Bill looked at me and he said, oh, you're dead. Trump's going to light you up tomorrow on Twitter. I said, no way. He's not going to light me up on Twitter. He says, let me tell you something. He goes, you were seven for eight for Trump tonight you got to go 13 for 10 for a guy like Donald Trump. And 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 he watches my show. He's not going to like what you said. And he's going to light you up on Twitter tomorrow. And I said to Bill, no way. I'll bet you dinner. I lost the bet. We t- I took him to dinner. But when Trump hit me, let me tell you something that's very honest, okay? And you can't see what I'm – I was as white as the board on my desk or, or as white as the door behind you. I don't care who you are. He was the sitting president of the United States with 150 million Twitter followers. And when he hit or 80 million Twitter, whatever the number was, when he hit me, I went white. Okay. I was in Craig's restaurant in LA with my wife, and I went white. I got up from the table and I went into the bathroom and washed my face. And then I responded to him. And then what happened to me is that Long Island thing kicked in and being Italian and growing up the way I grew up, I said, wait a minute, this guy's a bully. Yeah, he's the president of the United States. But Mike, let me tell you the beauty of this country. They still work for us. We don't work for them. If we were in Russia, you could, first of all, I've already been taken out. And if we were in Russia, I, I can't talk like that. You, you, you follow what I'm saying? But we're here. Yeah, I do. Okay,
0: we're in a free nation. And so once he hit me like that, I said, okay, let's go. No problem. But doesn't this show, doesn't this show that you broke with Trump, not out of principle, but because of personal insults and maybe you've changed and maybe that was. No,
1: no, 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 no. I broke with Trump because he's crazy and I broke with Trump because what he did to me was a sign of that craziness. I broke with Trump
0: because he kept moving the goalposts. But that very show where you gave him, lobbed one insult at him, you were defending all the rest of his but, policy. But hold, but hold on,
1: let me let me address this. That this is very important. I should have broken with Trump when he was talking about the Mexicans on the announcement of the candidacy. Okay, but I didn't because I morally equivocated. Okay, I didn't, and and Nikki Haley didn't, and Mike Pompeo didn't, and so. We said to ourselves, okay, we're Republicans. What he said was morally reprehensible, but we're going to tolerate it because we like him versus Hillary Clinton. That is completely wrong. I have to own that for the rest of my life. That decision-making was born from moral expediency, political expediency, and ego. Okay, so I have to own that. I can't sit here and tell you that I did something right. I did something wrong. And it kept going. He kept moving the goalposts. It kept getting worse and worse and worse. And what he does is he preys on your loyalty, Mike. You're from Long Island. So we don't know each other, but I guarantee you're a loyal guy to your friends. Okay. But loyalty is symmetrical. To Trump, it's asymmetrical. So what he does is he preys on your loyalty. He says, okay, you're loyal to me. Let me move the bulk post. Does that upset you? Oh, it doesn't upset you yet? Okay, let me move the goal post. Oh, that doesn't upset you? Let me move the goal post, okay? So he pushed the goal post out into the parking lot, past the end zone, into the stadium. And I should have broken from the guy in 2016 and never supported him, but I didn't. So I have to own that, okay? So if you're making the point, I only broke from him because he personally attacked me, I'm going to make the point that I should have broken from him earlier, but I used that as a catalyst to break from him. Yes, I did. Once he did that, I said, this guy's completely batshit crazy. I gave him a million dollars of my money to help him become president. Hundreds of hours of media time. If he's attacking me, he could attack anybody. And that's what I wrote in the tweet. I said, so right now he's attacking me and someday he'll be attacking you because you don't care about anybody. He's, he's, He's the narcissist of narcissists. You're an object in his field of vision. These supporters don't understand that about him, but he don't care about them. Could care less about them. He wants to feed the bottomless pit of money and attention and fame. That's what he wants to do. You
0: know, don't even Mike, he didn't even like the job. He hated the job. He wouldn't even read the daily brief. He hated the job. And tomorrow, more merch. We get into being ripped off by Samuel Bankman Freed. And if that or his time spent with Trump made the mooch recalibrate his personal bullshit detector, Anthony Scaramucci again tomorrow. And now the spiel. The growing sentiment to decriminalize sex work has led to a consequence that few in the city of San Francisco seem to have anticipated. It's that if sex work is no longer prosecuted, then sex work will no longer be enforceable as a matter of law enforcement, because law enforcement will no longer be involved in regulating sex work, policing it, if you will. As a result, neighborhoods and streets where children and families live have become open air markets of sex workers parading their wares. The residents living on Cap Street in the Mission District talked to the local Fox affiliate. Violence of the pimps, that they not only intimidate the women and manhandle them aggressively, they also sometimes intimidate the neighbors. ABC also reported, quoting residents who didn't know what to tell their children as prostitutes were having sex on the front steps of their houses and their houses were being broken into. We have a sanctioned red light district on cap street. We see women walking down the middle of the streets pretty much naked. Um, The line of bumper to bumper cars all towards three o'clock in the morning. It looks like the Las Vegas strip. Fed up with what they say is a lack of action. By city officials and SFPD, five residents agreed to share their stories. They fear for their lives and asked to remain anonymous. I'm scared. I'm scared. Of the, pimps. the sentiment was shared by many of the all-anonymous residents that ABC talked to. For now, these residents say they're trapped inside their homes until something changes. It's like every night pimps and prostitutes come and take our street hostage and neighbors are shut in. San Francisco police cite Bill SB-357 as the reason they're unable to stop this from going on. Sponsored by San Francisco-based legislator Scott Weiner... And signed by Governor Gavin Newsom, this bill repeals a provision of California law criminalizing, quote, loitering with the intent to engage in prostitution. As Weiner's press release says, the criminal provision, arrests for which are based on an officer's subjective perception of whether a person is acting like or looks like a sex worker, results in the disproportionate criminalization of trans, black, and brown women. Maybe... But you know who else looks like sex workers? Sex workers. Both ABC and Fox and the San Francisco Chronicle showed images of these sex workers and they obviously are sex workers. Now I suppose technically they just seem to obviously be sex workers to me, who by the way, might well be disproportionately trans or black or brown, but in any case, the police cannot now stop them from loitering. So what the city will do is barricade this particular block from cars, which will, of course, only push the trade a few blocks away. So a new set of residents will regret what might be the overall laudable goal of legalizing what was once called prostitution. And it also seems that even as we're reconsidering what to think of sex work, we haven't reconsidered so much of what we think of sex buying an activity engaged in by what are still called Johns. The customers are not sent to sex-consuming school, it's literally called John School and it is a condition of criminal sentencing. So in San Francisco, it's the Johns versus the Karens. Most of us, if not all of us, don't really have a problem with the sex workers or even their business itself. It's really the fact that this is a residential neighborhood. In all actuality, these women, like the one quoted here, they're just mothers and residents who don't want their neighborhood to become a red light district. They're not Karens. I was just making a hilarious joke, but it has a point that just as we're making efforts to destigmatize prostitution by not calling it prostitution, we still continue to stigmatize or in fact, newly stigmatize those with concerns by inventing derogatory labels for them. Maybe there's a permanent amount of judgment that anyone's society possesses and it can only be redistributed, never lessened. In any case, the big villain isn't the sex worker. It's not even the person on the street who doesn't want to be beset by sex working. It's the pimp. And by the way, that label is still the pimp not sex management. One effect of the success of the shifting of blame and stigma away from prostitutes, sorry, sex workers, such that we don't even say prostitute, we say sex workers, is that more blame than ever is laid on the pimp or the shadowy and possibly imaginary apparatus above the pimp. The idea of sex trafficking has become something of an obsession, occupying the place of concern that prostitution itself used to occupy. So what's happened is you see the phrase and the idea of sex trafficking everywhere, often untethered to the reality of how widespread it really is. It's become a QAnon trope. It's become a big right-wing talking point, even apart from QAnon. This is Super Bowl week, when sex trafficking stories and supposed statistics are rampant, but impossible to verify. In fact, they're not even hard to rebut. What I would like is a more methodical approach to all of this, less emphasis on changing words and more on thinking out ramifications. Advice to the advocates of the world, when you ask for a reform, and it's a pretty big reform, and the reform happens, and the situation is shocking, appalling, or just bothersome to the citizenry. Media, other elected officials, you've got a problem on your hands. And of course, you'll always be able to use phrases like just growing pains or change is hard, but also maybe you should anticipate that radical reforms will bring with it radical outcomes. That was the point of radical change, but the outcome won't always be in the direction of progress as you define it. And rather than blame moms and homeowners with a distaste for being thrust into a pop up outdoor brothel, have a bit of a plan beforehand anticipate that this is going to happen and that not everyone is as on board as the most dedicated among you decriminalization is almost never and should almost never be an end goal what do you have after a crime stops becoming a crime Decriminalization just means you're not going to be arresting people engaged in activity, but that activity will continue. In this case, people are engaged in a robust, multi layered marketplace. Ask yourselves what happens then? You might want to think out the consequences if sex workers are as free to work their work as any other vendor, especially considering the guy who runs the coffee cart distribution network or the pretzel vendor syndicate doesn't kidnap anyone or force any worker into a lifestyle they'd never have chosen for themselves. And look, maybe that doesn't happen with every or even the vast majority of sex workers either, but a disturbing number of people are worried about it. Just the very fact of widespread worry can't be discounted. It's a concern and it's part of the reforms that you're advocating for. It seems to me that thinking about how the decriminalized market will function is every bit as important as achieving the decriminalization. In fact, you might want to think about that beforehand. It's not a problem. You can forever shunt a few blocks away. And that's it for today's show. And I do want to tell you about the GoFundMe that we've launched for this lovely family, the Denushkinas who are living with us. We have taken them in from Ukraine, where they fled a war that's now a year in the making. And my friend Eric gave quite generously to the GoFundMe we have that you can find on MikePeskett.com. He gave, I think, 250 bucks, and I thanked him. I said, thank you for your donation, Eric. So nice. And he said, what's nice is you opening your home to people. Nicely done. And I said, well, we have a basement apartment, and we were contacted to be able to host this family for a month and we thought we could and because we could we thought we should but what we found out and what we didn't realize upon saying yes is that most of the work is not in the category of landlord activity most of the work is in the category of something like social work or government liaison and we willingly my wife and I, Michelle, who you know from such credits is coming up, and we put ourselves in this situation and we do so willingly. But what we need to do is get the Denushkina's permanent housing. We need to get them to navigate the schools. We need to get them on their feet as Sergei gets his proper accreditation as an electrician. Everyone gets their social security numbers. The two little kids and the wife have one, but the guy who actually needs it to work, we're still working on getting it for him. So that's why we have the GoFundMe up. I've probably gone on too long. Go to MikePesca.com. Click on that picture if you do want to donate. The producer of The Gist is Corey Wara. The senior producer is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is social work government liaison for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperuji peru du peru. Thanks for listening.